thanks so much again for this opportunity to be able to share God's word. Uh, I think uh, because of this situation now, uh, Chuck has already told me that they're gonna, you're going to try to get me on the schedule sometime where we can come out. I'm all for that. We would love to come. We'd love to see you. Uh, but grateful that we can study God's word together today and we can make this work. So uh, with all that said, uh, let's dive into God's word. Let's study scripture together. And if you have your Bibles with you, or I'm guessing there's maybe some Bibles in this pews there, or if you have the app on your phone, uh, let's turn to God's Word together. Uh, we're going to be looking today at the book of Mark. Now Mark is found in the New Testament. Matthew, then Mark, if you're in Luke or John, back up a little bit. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 35. And what I'd love for you to do is when you find Mark 10, verse 35, leave that passage open as we read it and then leave it open as we study it because we'll refer back to some of the verses there and I want to have it uh, right in hand for you as we study together. All right, so Mark 10, starting in verse 35. And uh, before we study God's word, would you please join me in prayer? God, it's always a gift to be able to study your holy word. And uh, today we're grateful that even though the miles separate us, uh, we can study God's Word together. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, you're present here in this moment, even though they're recording this now. Uh, you're present as the faithful there at North Holland are gathering and watching and, and studying together. Uh, Holy Spirit, we know that through all of that, you can surpass mileage and time, and you can allow this to be a faithful time of studying and growing together. Uh, Spirit, give to us all that you would want us to know today. And then empower us to live in the way that we can continue to follow Jesus Christ more and more. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Friends, listen with me to these words from the book that we love. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, that's Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink from the cup that I drink and or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink from the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Then the ten heard about this. They were indignant with James and John. Then Jesus called them together and said to them, You know that those who rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. You know, I'm going to be honest with you this morning I cannot figure out how to react to James and John. Because on one hand, I get it. They are so relatable. 
right? Because we, we, all, we all have some ambition, don't we? I mean, there's, there's some of us here today that are, are striving to climb the corporate ladder, or, or there's others of us who are going to push to get that 4.0, or, or maybe some of us are training hard, and we want to show coach that I deserve a starting role, or, or some of us are practicing hours and hours on end so that we can be first chair, or, or some of us are working hard so we can be the lead role on stage, or, you know, I'll just, I'll just admit, you know, I'm willing to admit that in early years of ministry with you at North Holland, and even still today, uh, I have this pressure that I put upon myself. I want to be known as a, as a great pastor in our denomination. There's this standard of greatness that we strive for, and it's often related to success, or recognition, or power, or achievement, or standing. And the, the world approves of this, we believe. And then we believe then the world approves of us. And, and so I get James and John. I know James and John. I've seen James and John. I've been James and John. Each of you? Influenced by the kind of kingdom they believe Jesus will bring about, James and John have one thing in mind with their request, that, that, that when Jesus establishes his physical earthly kingdom after he kicks out the Romans, uh, Jesus is going to need to set up a new government structure. And James and John, they want positions of power. They want authority. They want to be cabinet members under the new president. And so James and John, they know what they want and they ask for it. We want you, Jesus, to do for us whatever we ask. A bit more bold than I would be. But I get it. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Here, here's a fun side note. Uh, in Matthew's telling of this story, it's their mom who makes this request. So, so how about this? We will save the sermon about over-functioning helicopter parents interfering with the maturity, development, and social skills of their children for the next time or the time that I can come out and share with you. How, how's that sound? Yes? But because what we have here in Mark is James and John. They make this big ask. And, 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 and we who are familiar with ambition, we get it, don't we? And, and so that's one way. That's one way that I react to this. But I'm also inclined to react another way. And that's very similar to how the other ten disciples react. Jesus and James and John, they're talking, and, and somewhere along the lines, the other ten disciples catch wind of what's happening. And, and when they hear what these two brothers are asking, they are mad. They're furious. The word in my Bible is indignant. And I mean, it's obvious why, right? Who do James and John think they are? Who, who, do they think they were, they're better than us? Do, do they think they have a right to ask Jesus for this? Who do they think they are that they sneak off and make this request? I mean, there's an obvious reason for their anger. But there might be another reason why they are frustrated. Some wonder, and I'm intrigued by this, and I wonder what you think as well. Some wonder if the other ten disciples aren't so mad at James and John that they've made the request as much as they are mad that James and John beat them to making the request. 
that flowing through their minds as well are thoughts of holding positions of power and prestige that in their minds they're they're dreaming about having their lives transformed from being fishermen in Galilee to now being the faces of a new government. But James and John beat them to it. They've got dibs. And the other ten are fuming about it. And, and, and this reminds me a little bit of, of a little situation, a little jockeying for position that we've got going on in our house right now. Uh, nearly, nearly every time we leave in the car, for the car, uh, the shout of, shotgun, is expressed. And, 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 and the, the desire, right, to sit in the front seat of the car, the front sat passenger seat. And, and I tell you what, no matter who says it, and no matter where they say it, no matter the certain number of minutes before we leave, or whether they're still in the house, or if the garage door is open, or, or if, if, the, if they're still here or there, it, it does not matter. It does not matter who says it and when, it typically sparks an argument that someone has broken some sort of unwritten and ever-changing rule about where and when you can call shotgun. Can any of you relate to that? So I see the other ten disciples here. They're upset with James and John. They're mad that they made the request, but they're also mad that they called shotgun first, that they beat them to it. And so I can appreciate the other ten. I can pre appreciate their response. And I can appreciate the ambition that James and John show. And so I'm not sure what my reaction should be to James and John here in this passage. Understanding? Or upset? L let me ask you, what's your initial reaction? What, what stirs inside of your gut? To what James and John do here. I am intrigued by Jesus' response. You know, no matter what our initial response is, one way or the other, we, we can name that this is a big ask, right? I mean, this is big. This is bold. This is ambitious. This is this is a little self-serving, and James and John, they've got this great confidence that, that they can come to Jesus with this request. And, and in this confidence and in this ambition comes Jesus' response. And I find it so fascinating that his first instinct is not to lecture. What do you mean you want me to do for you whatever you ask? <laughs> right? Who do you think I am? Do you think I'm some sort of singing blue genie that comes out of a lamp and is going to grant three wishes? No, what we see here, look at verse 36 with me. What we see is Jesus Jesus takes it all in stride. He's kind of like, okay, what you got? L let me hear it. What do you want me to do for you? And that response affirms something to me, and I, and I hope it affirms something to you as well. That one of the great truths of our faith is that we can ask God for anything. There's no request that's too small, or, or in this case, too big, that we can't bring to our loving Heavenly Father. We can bring anything to God. We can bring the decision about whether to stay at that job or not. We can bring that to God as, as well as we can say, God, would you keep me safe on this morning commute? We can ask God for friends at school that will build us up. We can ask God to help us remember the lines in the school play. We can ask God for an open spot at the lunch table. And, and we can even ask God to change the wrong answers to right answers on the test when we walk out of the room. Trust me, I've prayed that prayer before. We can bring concerns about the upcoming procedure. And we can pray about protecting our pet. We can bring to God the deepest questions we have about faith. And we can ask God, will you just save me from embarrassment of not knowing the answer in class? 
We, we can bring to God our desired characteristics and qualities that we want in a future spouse, and we can pray, God, would you take away the middle of the night snoring with the spouse that we've got? Now, I, I know this is, this is not going to be the main point of this message, but this was too much of an important faith lesson for us just to leave beside. Jesus' initial response here in verse 36 tells us to this bold, to this almost demanding request, Jesus' response tells us that nothing is too big, nothing is too small to bring to him. And so bring it all. But when we do, be prepared. Because yes, we can bring anything to God. And yes, sometimes the answer is yes. But we aware the answer isn't always Yes. Beware that the answer we might receive might change our expectations, or, or in this case, it might change our standards of greatness upside down. James and John, they ask to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in glory, and, and Jesus here offers a word of caution. He's like, can you drink from the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Jesus is referring to the cup, the, the cup of the Old Testament here, the, what's called the cup of wrath. It's a, it's a punishment, it's a suffering that comes upon a person or a nation. And the baptism that Jesus is talking about isn't, isn't the, the cute baptism we see on Sunday mornings with the cute little babies. No, this is a baptism, this, uh, this context, the, the image here is of, of being swallowed up, of being submerged, of waves that billow over someone. These are hard things that Jesus speaks of. These are the things uh, that come about uh, with, with a place where that people have to endure when they're with Jesus. Hard things happen. Now, to James and John, to their credit, they don't bat an eye. We're like, they're like, we got this. W which is a good thing because Jesus says, you're going to deal with this. You're going to drink from the cup. You're going to be baptized from the cup. And we know, right, from later from Scripture, we know James is a martyr. And John is exiled. There, there's hard days for those two ahead. And Jesus concludes, he says, you know, I can't grant those places. They're not for me to grant. And he says, those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, now I don't know if Jesus was going to expand on that or not. But verse 41 interrupts the conversation. Because that's when the other ten catch wind of what's going on. And as we said before, their anger rises. And what we have here in verse 41 is the most critical moment of this passage. James and John have made their bold request. The other ten are outraged. And if you think about it with me, these, these disciples, all 12 of them, they have been following Jesus around for three years, all throughout Galilee, back and forth to Jerusalem. They've had a, a front row seat of the teaching and preaching and miracle ministry of Jesus. But, but this is a critical moment. Because these 12 disciples right now are threatening to come undone. We, ha we have to remember this morning that these 12 disciples, they were not childhood friends. They were not all buddy-buddies. They were not all natural fits to hang out together. Some, some of them knew each other as fishermen, but maybe even rival fishermen. You have Matthew, who's a tax collector for Rome. And then you got Simon the Zealot, and that descriptor, Zealot, means that he's a part of a group whose sole ambition is to overthrow Rome, right? The, these 12 are not all buddy-buddies. They are not long life, lifelong childhood friends. They are not a natural group that would come together in community. They're, they're not like... They're, they're not clone troopers, right? They're not all the same as one another. They're a ragtag group. They're more like a water farm boy and a smuggler and a princess and a Wookiee and a prototech droid and an astromech droid. You know, that, that, that they're all gifted in their own ways and together they can accomplish great things, but they're, they're also susceptible to splintering at times. 
And what we have in this moment is James and John, they've made the request, the other ten, they're upset, and the group is at a crossroads. And if they are all seduced by the world's standards of greatness, if they're seduced to pursue power and position and prestige and authority and privilege, it's going to rip this group apart. You've seen it. I've seen it. We see it in politics. We see it in the boardroom. We see it on teams. When the hearts of those who are involved are focused more on the world's standards of greatness, it tears apart the fabric that holds great groups together. And that's why Jesus takes action. In the first half of this passage, Jesus is more reactive. He's more responsive to what James and John are doing. But look in verse 42. Jesus, sensing the critical nature of this moment, Jesus takes charge. He calls the group together, and he says something to those disciples that they need to hear in that moment. And he's saying something that I believe that we also need to hear today. The world has its standards of greatness. For the world, it's about lording over power. It's about exercising authority over others. It's about position and privilege and power and prestige. And Jesus says, you've seen this, and and, and we've seen this as well. But then Jesus says to those 12 who in that moment are threatening to come undone, Jesus says in that moment to you and I who live in a world that feels like it is splintering apart, Jesus says this. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. Listen to that again. Not so with you. Would you say that with me? I know we're miles apart. That's okay, but we can still say this together. You ready? Not so with you. Let's do it again. Not so with you. The standard of greatness for a disciple of Jesus Christ is different than that of the world. The world seeks after position and power and privilege and authority and reputation and recognition and ambition. But Jesus says, not so with you. Say it again with me. Not so with you. Someone very wise once said this. Discipleship does not afford the opportunity for flaunting authority. But discipleship comes with great responsibility for servanthood. The standard of greatness for a disciple of Jesus Christ is this. You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Be a slave. Come to serve, not be served. Follow my example, Jesus says. It just makes me, you know, it doesn't surprise me, but it's just amazing to me. The passage right before ours, earlier in chapter 10 here in Mark, Jesus, for the second time, tells his disciples he's going to lay down his life. And he puts it in these words in verse 45. Look at verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the second time in two passages that Jesus says he's going to give up his life. And James and John, they miss it. Right? And the other ten, they, they may are maybe missing it as well. The, the allure of the world's standards of greatness was so strong, it was too strong. And so the request comes, and, and in that moment, the other disciples are mad because they want it as well. And so in this moment, when things are coming undone, Jesus makes sure that he reorients and redefines and reiterates what true standard of greatness is, and that's to serve. True greatness is to place others higher than ourselves. True 
greatness is to give of ourselves for the betterment of others. That is the standard of greatness when it comes to following Jesus. One commentator writes, Greatness consists not in reducing other people to one's service, but in reducing oneself to their service. See, greatness is not what I get. It's what I give. Greatness is not to be served. It's to serve. And so that brings me back to, back to this dilemma, right? How, do, how are we supposed to react to James and John to this request? Do we understand it? Or are we upset by it? You know, maybe, maybe there's a third option. Maybe we learn from it. Maybe my reaction, maybe our reaction is to consider which standard of greatness will we pursue? Will our allegiance be to the standard of greatness that this world promotes, that of position and power and privilege and authority? Or will it be the standard of greatness that Jesus teaches? And that Jesus models, one of serving, one of giving rather than receiving, one of laying down my life for another. Not long ago, a, a member here at Westview gave me this article, and I wish I could uh, share this right directly with you this morning, but uh, it's an article about uh, the four chaplains. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole article, but I, I want to summarize a little bit of it for you. Uh, the, the article talks about, it was February 3, 1943, uh, which is at the heart of World War II. And uh, there's an army transport that's en route uh, across the cold Atlantic on the way to an American base in Greenland. And a German submarine notices the convoy and fires a torpedo, and it hits the ship called the Dorchester. And on the Dorchester, there are four chaplains. One of them is Jewish, one of them is Catholic, one of them is Methodist, and the other one, get this, is Dutch Reformed. Isn't that great? Uh, and, and these four chaplains, they try to bring calm, they try to care, they try to, they try to help as many people as possible. Uh, and, and one of the things they're doing is they're handing out life jackets. And what they come to quickly realize is that there's not going to be nearly enough life jackets for everyone. And so without hesitation, they take off their own life jackets and they give it to someone else. And all four of those chaplains perished that night. And it's told that as the ship is sinking, the four of them linked arms with one another. And they set their faith differences aside. And they sang hymns. And they prayed. And I tell you what, you want to read something heavy, uh, just read about these individuals and, and read about the families that they left behind. Each of the four chaplains were awarded the Distinguished Service Cross as well as the Purple Heart and, and also a Medal of Heroism. There's been a chapel that has been dedicated to them and, and their story is now known and revered across the military branches. And, and today the American Legion has an interfaith program on the very first Sunday of February and it's called Four Chaplains Day. Now that last little part there is great, isn't it? Awards, medals, namesake, you know, tradition in their name, right? They remember, these chaplains are remembered, there's greatness there. Now why was it there? Because they served. They literally laid down their lives 
so that others could live. Friends, this world is going to constantly bombard us with all the illusions of what greatness is. But Jesus says to you and to me, he says, not so with you. Our greatness is following the teaching and the example of Jesus, being a servant of all, of laying down our lives for one another. North Holland, may that be so in us and through us all.